0: From an early age, Teddy Roosevelt was infatuated with the military. To him, soldiers were the very embodiment of the American spirit.
1: He felt that the frontier had, you know, made America into a great nation. It had made the American character unique. He speaks about frontier virtues of hardiness and public spiritedness and independence. And he sees... Military officers as upholding that kind of American virtue.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, Teddy Roosevelt's transformation of the U.S. military. And later, what constitutes a successful liberal presidency?
2: a liberalism which is defined by its compassion for those people who are suffering, but a liberalism that is also based in the understanding of the limits of politics.
0: But first, at the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. was on the cusp of becoming a world power. And when Teddy Roosevelt assumed the presidency in 1901, he was determined to expand America's overseas holdings. But the military was in shambles. Matt Oyos is a history professor at Radford University and the author of In Command, Theodore Roosevelt and the American Military. Matt, when Theodore Roosevelt became president in 1901, what had been his own military experience?
1: Well, commonly people, you know, look at his experience during the Spanish-American War When he joined up in 1898, having been Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he wanted to have the adventure of a lifetime, you know, the Rough Riders and so forth. And basically, he charges up the San Juan Heights and right into the White House. But his military experience actually dated before that. In the early 1880s, he first got a taste of it when he joined the New York National Guard. And he served for about three years, rose to the rank of captain. So, even though the reference point is commonly his experience with the Rough Riders, the first volunteer cavalry in the Spanish American War, his interest in military affairs dates well before then.
0: And so, when he assumes a presidency in 1901, what state was the military in? What kinds of wars was it designed to service?
1: It's really in a state of transition because the military that he's largely going to inherit especially in terms of the land forces, the army, was essentially still what you call a frontier constabulary. That is uh, a force that was in scattered forts to police the frontier, maintain Native Americans on the reservations that had been created for them, and had proven in the Spanish-American War, at least in the expedition to Cuba, that it was not up to the task of essentially policing a new American empire with overseas holdings. The Navy was in somewhat better shape. The Navy had begun to modernize from a wood and sail operation as, well, as lazy 1880s it maintained many ships such as that, to a more modern steel and steam force. But it was still growing. Um, it still had just a handful of battleships, you know, the chief weapon of war for naval warfare at the time. And Roosevelt, who had been assistant secretary of the Navy and helped prepare it for the Spanish-American War, knew it intimately, but he knew that in order for it to really represent the United States as a great power with overseas interests, that it needed to be expanded a great deal.
0: You write that he especially admired the Navy. Did that come exclusively from what he learned as assistant secretary?
1: No, um, that came, again, from a really decades before that experience, he'd gotten a fascination with with naval affairs from his youth. His two uncles on his mother's side had served the Confederate Navy. Roosevelt romanticized their experiences, and he developed that interest into his senior thesis at Harvard College in which he wrote about the Naval War of 1812, Uh, really wrote something of a definitive history on that. And so he was much in demand, for example, at the Naval War College to give lectures there. So he was really well-versed in naval affairs leading up to his appointment as assistant secretary of the Navy. It was one of the ways that he helped lay claim to that office, that he had certain credentials that would make him qualified for it.
0: Was he champing at the bit as soon as he became commander-in-chief to beef up the Navy?
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> he, he, he was champing at the bit as a young man from the 1880s forward. But once he had the responsibility, he, he desperately wants to build more battleships. For him, that's the major index of a nation having made it in the world. For example, in a two-year span of time, he's going to gain—well, one year he's going to get an authorization of five battleships and followed quickly by two more— And over the sum of his presidency, it'll be uh, 16 battleships he adds to the fleet.
0: Was there a lot of resistance to his grand vision for expanding America's power abroad, especially through a powerful navy? He ultimately built the second strongest navy in the world, right?
1: He did, although uh, it'll be superseded by Germany uh, in not too short of order and uh, become third rank. But still, it's among the preeminent navies. And, and and yes, there there is pushback. There is an anti-imperialist sentiment within the country um, that is resistant about the acquisition of American overseas holdings. Uh, they say it runs against the American anti-colonial heritage. It runs you know, counter to the ideal of the consent of the governed and the idea of non-intervention into the affairs of others, as George Washington had preached in his farewell address. Um, and then there's also individuals who are resistant on grounds of fiscal conservatism. And he's going to more than double the Navy budget over the seven and a half years that he is president. And uh, they're, they're very worried about, you know, what where that's going to lead in the future in terms of this national commitment to this force.
0: You're right, he had some of his sharpest criticism from within the armed forces. Why is that?
1: Yes, um, he wants to bring about a change in the personnel system of particularly the army. When he was in the war with Spain, he saw many officers that he believed were unfit for duty, whether because of age or intelligence or just their physical, general physical fitness. And he wanted to have a promotion by merit system that, well, is currently used in the armed forces, where you're promoted on the basis of merit. And if you don't you know, move up in a certain number of years, then you're selected out to be retired. But the old guard in the military, and the army in particular, was very resistant to this. Um, many of the top officers were still of Civil War vintage. And they look at Roosevelt, who is now a you know, the first post-Civil War president, as, as a fellow who's trying to displace their generation with this proposed reform. And so they will resist him, and he will not get that done when he's president. There's just too many connections with members of Congress, many of whom are also Civil War veterans. They're not going to replace their greatest generation.
0: Why was he so enthralled with soldiering itself? What was it about the life of a soldier that captured his imagination that he thought was good for citizenry at large?
1: Wow. This is where you get into some of the profound aspects of his his thinking There is a romanticization that occurred. You know, he was a young child during the Civil War, and so, you know, he romanticized the things that he heard about going on at the front in the Civil War. And he carries that through almost up to his last days until his youngest son is killed in July 1918 in France. He also equates it to being essentially the frontier, Uh, that is, the frontier experience, that he felt that the frontier had, you know, made America into a great nation. It had made the American character unique. He speaks about frontier virtues of hardiness and public spiritedness and independence. And he's worried that's going to be lost as the nation increasingly becomes industrialized and urbanized. And he sees military officers as upholding that kind of American virtue, for him, it's a a question of character. And he sees them in general of being of the kind of character he wants all Americans to emulate.
0: You also write about some of his big mistakes, I think, of the treatment of African American soldiers in Texas in 1906. Tell me about that and what it says about him.
1: Yes, you're referring to the Brownsville affair or the Brownsville incident, and that is the great blemish on, I'd say, not just his record as commander-in-chief, but as president. Just for a little background, in 1906... The Army deployed African-American troops. They're referred to as, you know, the CT, colored troops, using the terminology of the time. And I believe they're sent from Nebraska on a rotation down to Fort Brown, outside Brownsville, Texas. This is the Jim Crow South. And the people of Brownsville did not welcome the coming of these African-American troops to their town. Um, there are incidents where they harass the soldiers, hitting them with the butts of guns, pushing them off sidewalks. And one night the town is shot up by a group of people. Uh, of course, it's, it's very dark. It's not like the kind of lighting we'd have in most American towns and cities today. A bartender is killed and a sh- deputy sheriff or sheriff, uh, law enforcement officer loses an arm because of a, a gunshot. And, Uh, the blame is put immediately by the people of Brownsville on the soldiers. An inquiry is conducted by the army, done fairly hastily, and they side with the townspeople and say that the soldiers, you know, basically did this out of revenge for the kind of treatment they'd received. Despite the fact that there were no reports of them leaving barracks, that their rifles were all within the racks, but Roosevelt, he accepts the inquiry. And when None of the soldiers step forth to, you know, reveal the culprits who may have actually carried out the shootings. Uh, He gives an arbitrary group punishment where all 167 of this unit are dismissed from the service with no hope of ever serving the civil service, dishonorable discharge. For Roosevelt, it's an arbitrary, unfair moment. And, you know, he has these moments where He seems to be ahead of many people on matters of race. There's the famous dinner with Booker T. Washington early in his presidency, uh, and he fought hard for civil service appointments for certain African-Americans of of accomplishment. But in this case, uh, I believe that he sees these soldiers as people, because of their race, more capable of such an act of violence than the white people of Brownsville.
0: And you don't blame that on him just wanting to not stir up the ire of powers in the military that made the decision, that it was his own blindness and racism, you think?
1: I think, too, on top of that, he has this self-righteous streak. And he sees these soldiers as maybe they did it, maybe they didn't. But he believes that someone should have stepped forward. That given the army inquiry that, you know, some of the soldiers obviously must have committed this. And, you know, they broke a code of honor in terms of the military. And for them, that also condemns, condemns them in, in his, his eyes. Because he, he does have that streak where he judges people by a very high moral standard that he establishes for himself and for others. And if he believes that you have broken it, you're going to face his wrath.
0: Well, Matt, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. I I thank you for having me.
0: Matt Oyos is a history professor at Radford University. He's also the author of In Command, Theodore Roosevelt and the American Military. Earlier this year, the New York Times asked Pete Buttigieg and the other Democratic presidential candidates how they would judge whether their presidency was successful should they win office. Not surprisingly, each of them had their own version of success.
3: My presidency will be a success if it unites the American people.
0: Whether or not we really expand opportunity.
1: I would advance new measurements like our mental health and freedom from substance abuse, our children's success rates our wellness and life
0: expectancy. But uh, you know whether you did the right thing. You know whether uh, you did a good job. I'd go to the words of Paul Wellstone that politics is about improving people's lives.
2: If we don't control the climate crisis, I don't even know where we're going.
0: My next guest studies that same question. What exactly constitutes a successful liberal presidency? Emile Lester is a political science professor at the University of Mary Washington and he turns to the late, great presidential historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. for answers. Emile Lester is the author of Liberalism and Leadership, The Irony of Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Emile, in your book, Liberalism and Leadership, you take an in-depth look at one of the great minds of the 20th century, Arthur Schlesinger. Tell us who Arthur Schlesinger was and what got you first interested in him.
2: So Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was, I think, the most important and influential presidential historian of the 20th century. And he's most well known for his histories of FDR's presidency, The Age of Roosevelt, his memoir of JFK, A Thousand Days. And he also served as an advisor to JFK during his presidency. And he was a co-founder of the democratic activist organization, Americans, for democratic action. And so what I found fascinating about Schlesinger is that you have academics who write about presidents today, but they don't have practical experience in politics. And then you have advisors who write memoirs, but they usually don't have an academic background. And Arthur Schlesinger, I think, is somewhat of a woolly mammoth of presidential historians huh. in the sense that he did both of those things. And the other reason I found Schlesinger fascinating is that there is a lot of punditry, certainly over the last 50 years and today, about what constitutes a successful democratic presidency. And I think that Schlesinger looks at that issue in more detail and more comprehensively than anyone else I know of in American history.
0: And what does Schlesinger say about liberalism and liberal or great liberal American presidents?
2: Well, I, I think there's the common perception of Schlesinger, and then there's what he's really like. So the common perception is that Schlesinger was a sort of myth maker. So there is one other presidential historian who says that Schlesinger's works about Kennedy are worshipful memoirs without scholarly restraint— that Schlesinger advocated a type of aggressive liberalism. But I think if you do a deeper dive into Schlesinger's work, what we find is a more sort of humble liberalism, a liberalism which is defined by its compassion for those people who are suffering, but a liberalism that is also based in the understanding of the limits of politics. And specifically, the limits of politics is that politics and government cannot deliver us everything that we want. And the other limit of politics, especially in American government, is that we live in a democracy. And so you need consensus in order to achieve anything in democracy. So it's a liberalism that places an emphasis on patience, gradualism, humility, and and also this consensus,
0: the two icons that um he was so famous for writing biographies of, j f k. and Franklin Roosevelt, he saw them as also restrained in their liberalism
2: he He absolutely did. and And this is where I think there is a common misperception about his books because because he wrote about those presidents who are conceived as these type of heroic, liberals who were very aggressive in pursuing their agenda. There was a confusion, I think, that Schlesinger supported that type of liberalism. But in a way, his histories are iconoclastic. And they suggest the ways that FDR and JFK practice a type of ironic liberalism. So he describes Kennedy and Roosevelt as moderately pessimistic, And for that reason, emphasizing the need for patience in politics, something which I think is in very short supply on both the left and the right today in American
0: politics. Give an example of the pessimism by both men, because I tend to think of them in the public eye as urging us onward and holding us to loftier ideals. Pessimism is not what I usually think of with either Kennedy or Roosevelt.
2: Well, in his memoir of JFK, for instance, one of the things that Schlesinger mentions is that JFK was very careful about pushing forward an aggressive agenda. Um, Two signature issues, which we're still familiar with today and still battling over to a certain extent, uh, Medicare. JFK was very reluctant to introduce Medicare. And he was somewhat cautious as well about the civil rights movement, And the reason that Schlesinger attributes to Kennedy that he's cautious on these things is that he has an understanding of the fragility of the membranes of American civilization, that we are just this incredibly diverse country and that it is difficult to to get us all on the same page. So it's not that Kennedy rejected the need for change. He certainly believed that it was important to have progressive change, which would alleviate inequality and injustice. But he believed also, and Schlesinger believed along with him, that you needed to wait for the right moment for change.
0: And how did he see that same characteristic in Roosevelt?
2: So in the earliest days of Roosevelt's presidency, Roosevelt took a very interventionist approach early in his first term towards the Great Depression. It's probably the closest that the American economy has ever come to socialism under the National Recovery Administration. He had other programs as well. In the Tennessee Valley Authority, for instance, there was the attempt to fundamentally change the economy of the Tennessee Valley. And not just to provide electrical power, which was its original mission. And so the first head of the TVA, which Roosevelt appointed, was Arthur Morgan, who I think his optimism can be glimpsed by the fact that he wanted to wipe out the dependence on tobacco and alcohol in the Tennessee Valley, which even today, it seems like a particularly utopian vision. And what Roosevelt learned over the course of his first term is that these measures, these really interventionist and sweeping measures, didn't quite work out as he had hoped. Now, to Roosevelt's credit, what Schlesinger says is that he was able to reverse course and he was able to take a more modest and less interventionist approach.
0: Schlesinger died in 2007, so he didn't really see the Barack Obama presidency, though may he may have known of Barack Obama, what do you think he would have made of him as a liberal president?
2: So I think there are definite overlaps, and, and my book talks about overlaps between the visions of JFK and Obama in a couple of different ways. Both JFK and Obama understood that when it came to foreign affairs, there were strong limits to American power and that also America is fallible. This is something that you find in JFK's speeches, for instance, this American University speech in 1963, and this is something which Obama says very clearly in his 2009 Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. He says, we make mistakes, we are fallible, we, we succumb sometimes to the temptation of evil. So there is this emphasis on the possibility that we can make mistakes, and that there are no such things as total solutions when it comes to foreign policy. Another overlap between JFK and Obama is that they were both skeptical about the ability of their rhetoric and their speeches to really change things in American politics. Schlesinger says, for instance, that Kennedy was almost embarrassed by his famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech. Because it raised expectations, which he felt that he and his administration, no administration, could actually meet. There are other parts, I think, of Obama's presidency, which Schlesinger might have been more critical of. So... I I think there was a tendency in Obama to be sort of an ultra-rationalist or almost utopian in his faith and reason, that he believed that all you needed to do sometimes was lay out a sensible policy, and if you explained it well enough to the other side, that they would accept it. And Schlesinger, on the other hand, understood that politics is because he understands the limitations of human beings that we are not just rational people, and that politics needs to be about appealing to interest and using force sometimes. And so to give a particular example, I think that Schlesinger would be critical of Obama's attitude towards unions. Unions have traditionally been a major, major part of the Democratic coalition, and they have led crucial support to democratic and liberal policy agendas. Obama never made it his mission during his administration to expand union membership. And actually, he and his education secretary spent a fair amount of time being critical of teachers' unions. And I think that Schlesinger would say that that undermined the base and mobilization that he needed to actually accomplish important parts of his agenda.
0: So looking now at this particular moment, so many progressives who have opted for Biden Don't feel really confident about his liberal bona fides. And there's tension in the Democratic Party, which seems to be leaning toward, for now, just get get him in office.
2: Yeah, well, well, you, you know, it's it's fascinating. So, so Schlesinger, again is not a Kennedy supporter initially in nineteen sixty, but then during the campaign, he writes this book. It, it's probably the most polemical and most clearly political book he wrote. And it's for for the purpose of electing President Kennedy, the book is Kennedy versus Nixon. And one of the things that he emphasizes to liberals is he says that look, Ken, you know, because Kennedy was not the preferred progressive or liberal candidate in 1960. That was Adlai Stevenson. And so Schlesinger says, well, look, his policies may not align with your policies, but what we should pay more attention to, which more important in presidents very often, is their personal virtues, And so what he encourages his readers to do is he encourages his readers to look at Kennedy and he says Kennedy demonstrates these important virtues of patience, humility, gradualism, pragmatism that really define what he thinks are important to liberals. And I think there's a really interesting analogy between the case that Schlesinger made for Kennedy and the case that could be made for Biden in this election, that sure, his history is complicated and in in some ways his history is certainly problematic. I, I wouldn't deny that. But I think Schlesinger might be here reminding us that we have to pay attention to the personal and and the the personal virtues that matter for politics. And again, I, I think you see some of those important personal virtues like humility, patience, gradualism, a commitment to existing institutions and understanding that you have to work through existing democratic institutions and seek consensus, which are crucial to being a good liberal and being a good liberal president.
0: Emil Lester, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I really appreciate it.
0: Emil Lester is a political science professor at the University of Mary Washington. He's also the author of Liberalism and Leadership, The Irony of Arthur Schlesinger Jr. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Whether waging war or brokering peace, world leaders face tough decisions almost every day. And how they decide what to do might depend far more on their personalities than previously thought. Dennis Foster is department head and professor of international studies and political science at Virginia Military Institute, Jonathan Keller is a political science professor and department chair at James Madison University. Together, they've come up with a psychological framework for understanding why leaders make the decisions they make. John, as a political scientist, you study something that is a little unusual in your field, political psychology. Is that controversial in the field of international relations?
3: Yes, uh... Interestingly, it is somewhat controversial in that many of the main theories focus not on individuals, not on the personalities or beliefs of leaders, but rather on broader structural forces, things like economic conditions or power distributions. And generally, leaders are discounted in many of the current approaches. Uh, Political psychologists argue that No, leaders do matter. Leaders' personalities and perceptions and beliefs uh, really do make a difference in how, for instance, a U.S. president will perceive the situation that he's facing and then respond um, to that situation.
0: What's a classic example of where you and others in political psychology would assert that this was an instance of a president whose personality characteristics made a big difference in a conflict or a key decision?
3: Well, one uh, example that I like to use uh, is uh, the 9-11 attacks. Uh, I think it illustrates both when leaders matter and when they don't matter. I think any U.S. president in response to the 9-11 attacks would have responded with military force once it became clear that the Taliban and al-Qaeda were responsible for those attacks. Having said that, Would any U.S. president have gone on to fight the Iraq war the way that George W. Bush did? Uh, Would any U.S. president have gone on to have a war on terror, defining that war the way that Bush did? I think there you see a clear divergence between President Bush and others who might have held that office. Uh, And so when you look at the 9-11 attacks, I think we have a good example of both a very strong sort of compelling situation that would make— Any U.S. president responds similarly, which is a military response, but at the same time provoke different responses from people who have uh, different views of the world, different leadership tendencies. Are you going to fight, say, in Iraq uh, rather than just in Afghanistan and so on?
0: And what did you come to understand about the personality of President Bush as a leader that might have made him choose— the more aggressive stance.
3: Yeah. So I think one thing about President Bush is that he had much more of a kind of black and white, either or low complexity approach where he saw the world in terms of good versus evil. You may remember that after 9-11, he said, you're either with us or against us. He very quickly uh, defined that conflict in terms of good versus evil, with the U.S. uh, as uh, the good guys and uh, the terrorists as the bad guys. And that may seem non-controversial to a lot of Americans, but remember that at the time, many radical critics of the United States said, we're not so innocent. Uh, The United States, in fact, uh, brought these attacks on itself. Uh, And so there were people with a different perspective on world politics, on U.S. foreign policy, who – reached very different conclusions about who the good and bad guys were uh, and therefore generated different policy responses for for dealing with the war on terror.
0: And Dennis, by contrast, can you name another of the presidents that you studied in the past as you looked for traits that might relate to whether they'd engage in conflict or not?
4: Yeah, so I think that that most Americans would, would agree that Barack Obama is a significantly different type of personality than, than George W. Bush. One of the, my favorite anecdotes is that when George W. Bush was asked who his favorite political thinker was, he said, Jesus Christ, our, our Lord and Savior. Uh, and President Obama said Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a American philosopher who's best known for the serenity prayer, right? And so that's that's a really good illustration, I think, of the differences of the complexity with which those two presidents view the world. And if we look at President Obama's general foreign policy philosophy, which has been, I think, perhaps erroneously shorthanded as uh, leading from behind, he doesn't stress American exceptionalism. He shies away at every turn from American unilateralism and instead wishes to engage in multilateral diplomacy uh, as, as much as possible short of the use of force gets everybody on board for, for instance, the Iran nuclear deal. And when everybody is not in it together, right, then maybe he comes to the conclusion that the job is just not possible. It's not, it's not possible to do the job at this particular point, right? And that I think is fundamentally different than, than President Bush's approach, which is black and white Binary response: They do something wrong, we punish them. American exceptionalism is alive and well, and if everybody else wants to get on board, fine, but they don't have to get on board, right? So I, I think that we can we can look at this in terms of specific behaviors, specific events in presidential administrations, but also I think in terms of the obvious differences in presidential foreign policy philosophy
3: and framing. Sorry, if I could just build build on that, Dennis. We use a what's called a leadership trait analysis system in order to develop scores on personality traits for world leaders, particularly with spontaneous remarks. So press conference answers, interview responses, um, and you're able to generate trait scores on characteristics like distrust or need for power or self-confidence based on the underlying, not the surface substance of what leaders are saying, because we believe leaders may intend to deceive. They may not come right out and say what they're thinking, what they're feeling, Uh, but rather the system has been developed by political psychologists to try to get at the underlying or latent content. Uh, That is, how do leaders use words? What combinations of words do they use together? What kinds of images come out in their speech? And we believe that this is largely unconscious. They cannot control the information that they're Providing to us basically uh, when they speak, and so when you do that, when you look for trait scores using this system for Bush versus Obama on the characteristic of conceptual complexity, how how complex are their thought patterns? Do they see the world in very simple black and white either or terms, or do they see lots of nuance, shades of gray, and complexity? What you find is that Bush scores much lower uh, on conceptual complexity and Obama scores much higher. And generally what political psychologists have found is that leaders who score lower in complexity act more impulsively. Uh, They believe they know what needs to be done. They don't spend a lot of time searching for others' opinions or more information. Leaders who score higher on conceptual complexity are much more cautious. Uh, They take a long time to make decisions Uh, Dennis gave some good examples of Obama. You know, I think about when he first came into office, there was about a nine-month period where he was trying to decide, do we surge forces in Afghanistan? And he was heavily criticized for taking so long to make this decision. Uh, But this is a common characteristic of leaders who are high in complexity. They see the pros and cons of all their, their options. They're always asking for more information, more advice and opinions from more advisors. And they can become paralyzed uh, by indecision because they are so complex in their thought processes. Uh, And so, you know, one interesting conclusion that I've drawn from looking at leaders who have often very different personality types is that they have different strengths and weaknesses. We might think, well, it would be great to have a U.S. president who's high in complexity, but there's some cost there. A leader who, who is very high in complexity may be paralyzed by indecision because they see so much complexity in the world. Whereas uh, a leader who's low in complexity, who you might criticize, well, they're too simplistic in their thinking, they're too impulsive, they tend to be great in a crisis uh, because they can respond very quickly.
0: So you focus mostly on US presidents. Talk about some other specific presidents that you have evaluated. And you did this by analyzing not their speeches, but their more casual conversations.
3: That's right. So the spontaneous remarks are preferred because it's believed that if a speech writer is involved with writing a, a piece of text, that it, you may be picking up the views of the speech writer rather than the leader's views. Another example of a leader who, who I studied was uh, President Kennedy actually looked at Kennedy versus Reagan and examined how their personality traits, their leadership styles affected their sensitivity to public opinion and congressional opposition to military force. So this is the idea of constraint respecters versus constraint challengers. A constraint respecter would be a leader who is unwilling to take action unless domestic audiences approve of it. President Kennedy, for instance, I found a lot of evidence that he did not want to use force in Vietnam unless he had the public on board and Congress on board. Uh, And I had some great documents that I found that were minutes of National Security Council meetings back in 1962, where Kennedy was kind of agonizing over the fact that, boy, I just cannot send troops to Vietnam because the public won't support it or members of Congress are not convinced, and i got to get them on board before we do this. Contrast that with President Reagan. I looked at the Grenada and Libya crises for for Reagan. He really was not that concerned at all about public opinion or congressional opposition. In fact, he viewed that kind of domestic opposition as illegitimate. As you know unfairly encroaching upon his authority as commander in chief, um, and so Reagan, uh, he was one whose who scores high on need for power, high on task emphasis, uh, high on distrust and nationalism, those scores I hypothesized I expected would lead him to um, be insensitive or unwilling to pay attention to domestic opposition when he believed that military force was justified. Uh, And in fact, that's what I found. So these two presidents differed in their personality traits, their leadership styles, and therefore their approach to domestic opposition during these crises.
4: Following up with what John said about constraint challenging, right? Sometimes that I think leads to, you know, on average, a little bit more militarized approaches to the international system, right? But when we look at interactive leader psychology, which is one of the things that John and I are doing in some of our most recent research. When you get two leaders together who are constraint challengers, they might be able to break the stalemate, if you will, between between the two rivals. So another another well-known constraint challenger, and I think this is evident just by looking at, at, at the way he handled things, was Richard Nixon. But he also was president during a time when his counterpart in China, Mao Zedong, was, relative to other Chinese leaders, a significant constraint challenger as well, right? So
0: A constraint challenger is a maverick or someone who scores high on out-of-the-box thinking, are you saying? Uh,
4: yes, generally. And and while, and while John originally developed the concept, I think, in relation to challenging domestic constraints on the conduct of foreign policy, we're, we're starting to, I think, move into an area where we think, yes, th- these— these individuals are generally speaking foreign policy mavericks. They do seem to engage in a lot of out of the box thinking, right? So Richard Nixon, on one hand, uh, a staunch anti-communist, goes to China in 1971-72 to the horror of his hardcore Republican constituents, right? But he does so. He himself says because he makes the claim that only Nixon could go to China, and that's a recognition that it was necessary to have his impeccable anti-communist credentials to be able to do that. He does it to work with the Chinese in a very basic way to bring pressure to bear against the Soviets in the American rivalry with the Soviet Union, right? And he finds in many ways a willing partner in this in Mao, uh, who is himself a maverick, who probably has a much higher cost to pay domestically in terms of commiserating or commingling with the enemy, certainly with the hated American imperialists, right? But these two constraint challengers, when they when they come into interaction, find that with each thinking outside the box, they are able to fundamentally shift the nature of the relationship between their two states. And so we, we have found, and John in particular has found, that constraint challenging proclivity does lead to a, a higher likelihood of the use of force. Especially when we start looking at the interaction of constraint challengers, I think we can see the likelihood of even more fundamental bigger changes in the in the timeline and nature of the relationship between states.
0: Any indication over the years whether Americans have gone for presidents who have more complexity or less complexity, presidents who flouted the mainstream versus embraced it, who are more cautious politically than not?
4: Well, I I mean I and John and I have talked extensively about this. I'm not even sure if we're in agreement on it. Um but it, yeah, I think that that like that the American people probably, at least occasionally, choose presidents on the basis of what they see of them or think about them regarding their psychological type. I mean, to think back to the election of Reagan and, you know, this idea of decisiveness, of it being morning in America, to turn the page on the difficult and sort of complicated, but really sort of dispiriting, in, in the eyes of many Americans, Carter presidency, right? And so I think that Insofar as as as, um, as Reagan was seen as somebody who was simplistic, who portrayed himself as clearly seeing the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union as defining, as Manichaean, right, as being a, a potential Armageddon thing, I think that Americans actually were attracted to that. So I think that there is some sort of element of this in which certainly electorates, right, the, the electorate can see, or at least speculate based upon words and actions and how they portray themselves, that this particular president having these particular traits might be the right person at the right time for America.
3: Yeah, I think that's very much the case that there's often a, a fit between the characteristics of a leader and the perceived needs at the time of the, the domestic populace. And so there's some research that suggests at times of crisis, times of international crisis or war, leaders who are More kind of take charge, hardline, maybe constraint challenger type leaders are likely to be elected or come to power. And at times that are more relaxed, times of consensus, times of just needing maintenance rather than revolutionary behavior, leaders come to power who are more consensus builders, more diplomatic, uh, leaders who don't maybe have a grand vision for redesigning the world or foreign policy, but are good at building consensus. And so one example that's sometimes given is after the collapse of the Soviet Union or the time when the Cold War was winding down, the American people were willing to hand the reins over from a cold warrior, Ronald Reagan, to much more of a consensus builder, George H.W. Bush. Same with Bill Clinton, who followed him uh, not somebody who wanted to revolutionize U.S. foreign policy. So I think there's often a fit between the perceived needs of the time or the, the situation. Is it an international crisis? Is it a, a time in which the public wants a leader who's going to take charge and lead boldly? Or uh, is it more of a, a time of maintenance and time to build consensus?
0: It's tempting now to look at the personalities that you might see in the two competitors for the U.S. presidency right now, Trump and Biden. What would your analysis of their personalities tell us about their likelihood, each man, to use force as president?
3: I would say generally it appears that Biden is somewhat more of a constraint respecter. I think Trump certainly talks like a constraint challenger. Uh, it's interesting, Dennis and I were talking a bit about this before. You know, it's a lot of Trump's rhetoric is very, uh, it challenges constraints and it suggests bellicosity, but his actual behavior has oftentimes not been, uh, particularly in, in foreign policy, he has not used military force at times when um people feared that, that he would. Uh, and so I think in terms of the scores, Trump scores high in distrust. That's one of the, uh, I think, significant findings. Um, a way that Trump stands out from a lot of leaders is that he scores higher on distrust than maybe any other U.S. president. And that would indicate that he sees more hostile motives in others. He kind of attributes their behavior to bad faith And so normally a a highly distrustful uh, leader will tend to engage in uh, a more conflictual foreign policy or use more military force because they see more threats in the world uh, and they believe that it's necessary to use hardline action, military action to deal with those threats. You know, I think Trump reserves a lot of his uh, kind of willingness to fight for, for domestic opponents and is less interested in engaging in foreign conflicts particularly uh as Dennis has mentioned before because his base is more focused on american interests first and not expending blood and treasure on foreign wars.
4: Yeah, I mean I I would follow I would follow that up by saying um you know our our theories about how leadership psychology matters don't stop politicians from being politicians, right? So 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 Trump's not Trump's not going to have the support that he does, I think. Generally speaking, if he goes half cocked in the foreign wars, although we don't have any solid data uh, on Joe Biden as of right now. I mean his previous life, so to speak, as a politician didn't really seem, at least in my view, to indicate the type of unifier that he has seemed to try to portray himself during the campaign. Right. So so I don't I don't know if Biden is a natural unifier, but I do know that it's a pretty good electoral strategy to portray yourself as a unifier. Right. So, you know, if I had to predict um, and I, I I don't want to do that, but if I had to predict what Biden would be like, it would be more complex, more trusting, et cetera.
0: I've read that some of the voting indicates that we may be on track to exceed the voting turnout percentage wise of 1908. And I wonder if that's given cause for the two of you to think about whether this particular contest may be outside the norms of how Americans usually think of the personality traits of their leaders.
4: Maybe. Um, or, or one, I guess, could make the argument that the clearly demonstrated personality traits of the incumbent might be driving turnout.
3: In both both ways, you could say, both for his supporters and his opponents.
4: That's that's right. One of, one of the interesting things about President Trump is that he doesn't play to type, so to speak. He seems to do things that people don't expect quite often. But he, you know, he makes clear who he is, tweeting, extemporaneous speaking, and I think that that might actually be one of the drivers of turnout this time. So, so I, I you're right, John. John's right. It does, it does cut both ways. It may not fit in with some of the patterns that we've that we've talked about and identified, but it might also be the case that this particular election is about personality traits and that the turnout that's likely to be much increased uh, in this election is bound up in that.
3: Well, and a counterargument there to the idea that personality is mattering for the election outcome is that because of the polarized environment we're living in, it may be that people are projecting onto the leaders what they want to see. So if you're very conservative, you are likely to see in Trump – Know what you want to see, and be willing to tolerate things that maybe you're not happy with. Same with supporters of Biden. And the more that people define things in terms of the lesser of two evils, the more they're willing to put up with an imperfect candidate. I think we're seeing this to some extent on both sides. Uh, There's not great satisfaction among many, uh, either on the left or the right, but they believe that you know on issues like the Supreme Court or other kind of fundamental questions of American society that they'd much rather be with, you know, their imperfect candidate than the other imperfect candidate, and they're kind of projecting onto their preferred candidate, you know, the policies that they'd like to see and, and so on.
0: Jonathan Keller is a political science professor and chair of the department at James Madison University. Dennis Foster is department head and professor of international studies and political science at Virginia Military Institute. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Alison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, Jamal Milner, and Aidan Carroll. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.